As you take a seat, I want to ask you a question as we start. How do you really get to know somebody? I mean, just think about your life. When you've really gotten to know somebody, how does that happen? Maybe, maybe it's over coffee, right? You just sit down, you need some caffeine and conversation, and that's all you need. Right? Maybe you hear their, their story in those type of conversations, and, and you learn about their, their family background, and maybe where they're from, and you think, if I'm going to really get to know you, I need to know the people who came before you. And, and do it that way. And, and maybe some of you, you're not really that way. You think, man, if I really want to get to know somebody, I, I need to just serve with them. If we really get our hands dirty and go on a mission trip or do some community service project, like that's the time. When I think about the people I know the best, like that's the time, like I really got to know them is through things like that. And maybe some of you, you think, hey, I don't need to even have a conversation with them. I just need to know their Enneagram type and use it against them and box them in. And that's how I... That's how I really get to know somebody. And, and for a lot of you, maybe it's different things like how you get to know somebody truly. But I would submit to you this, that the best way to get to know someone is to see them not on their best day, but their worst day. The, the best way to get to know someone, conversation or not, is to watch what they say and watch what they do in their darkest days, in their most difficult moments, and to watch how are you going to respond? Not when everything is going well and health, wealth, and prosperity, you're filling up your life, but when all that is taken away, who are you really? And I would submit to you, how do you really get to know someone? That's how. We are almost to the finish line, as I said earlier, in this series, Who Do You Say That I Am? In the Gospel of Mark, we've been looking at the life of Jesus. Who is this Jesus really? How does he affect our lives? And even his death, how does his death affect our life? And we're trying to get to know, believer or not, grew up in a pew first Sunday, who is this Jesus really? And I would submit to you, Mark 14, 15, and 16 this is when we really get to see who Jesus is. Because we don't just see a bunch of miracles and people crowding around him wanting to hear his amazing teaching. We get to see Jesus in a garden, sweating blood, distressed, everybody running away from him, leading up to his gruesome, embarrassing death on a cross. And we get to see Jesus in his darkest moments, and we get to see who he really is, because who you are really rises to the surface. Your character, your convictions, who you are rises to the surface when you are faced with your darkest moments. And we get to see that. We get a front row seat to that over these next couple of weeks in the Gospel of Mark. We get that today as we get to Mark chapter 14. Uh, we're going to start in verse 26 this morning, Mark 14, verse 26. I'm going to walk through the story today, talk about it a little bit. At the very end, we're going to get to a few main things that we take away from this. Here's what you're going to want to do is follow along with me. And so grab a Bible. You can do it now if you didn't already. Grab a Bible, pull it up on your phone. If you don't have an app, BibleGateway.com, and search Mark 14. We're going to start in verse 26, and let's follow along together. We're going to see two key circumstances that show us who Jesus really is. The first one we're going to see that's, that's dark and hard is betrayal. So if you're taking notes, you can write that down. Mark 14, verse 26. We see this betrayal. It says this, And when they, that's Jesus and his disciples, had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Mount of Olives was east of Jerusalem, same place, by the way, where Jesus ascends into heaven later, uh, victoriously. So Mount of Olives, significant location. Verse 27, and Jesus says to them, his disciples, 
you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Jesus there is quoting Zechariah 13 in the Old Testament. Verse 28, it says, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And then Peter said to him, even though they will all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But Peter said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Now we pick right up where we left off last week. If you missed it, uh, go listen on the podcast, on the website, Facebook Live. You can watch our sermons there. But last week what we saw is the Passover. And we talked about that the Passover for Jewish people, biggest party of the year, huge celebration. They have a four-course meal. Each one is introduced with a glass of wine. It's a celebration. But if you go back and listen to last week, read the passage right before this, you see that celebration quickly shifts to sorrow. And the reason why that happens is Jesus. Throughout this celebratory dinner, Jesus keeps talking about betrayal. And he says, hey, somebody who's drinking of this cup, hey, they're going to betray me. And he picks back up on that, and he doubles down on that, this time with Scripture. He references Zechariah 13, the Old Testament, and says, hey, here's how it's going to work. The shepherd, he gets struck down. The sheep, the followers, they scatter. They run. They flee. And just as Jesus doubles down, hey, you guys are going to betray me, you're going to run, Peter also doubles down. Do you see that? Peter says, Jesus, I will die before I deny you. I love it. He says, these other people, like these other chumps, they may run away, but not me, Jesus. Don't you just love Peter? (laughs) I mean, don't you just love his honesty, his bravado in this moment, his boldness to say, Jesus, I know you're, you're saying, again, for the second time that we will betray you, run away from you, flee you, and you're the son of God. Like, you're saying that, but also now you're quoting scripture, Zechariah 13. But I'm going to refute, refute Jesus and scripture in this moment and say that's not going to happen. Don't you just love Peter? And then he throws his buddies under the bus, right? And so that's what's happening as we come upon this scene And we're going to come back to this, but how things change, right? How things change. Verse 32, look at the verse. It says, and they went to a place called Gethsemane. That was the Garden of Gethsemane. You may have heard about it at the foot of the Mount of Olives. And Jesus says to his disciples, hey, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter, James, and John, his closest disciples. And he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And Jesus says to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. Verse 35, and going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. The text goes on to say that Jesus asked the disciples to pray and watch, but they keep falling asleep. Remember, darkest moments, most difficult moments. You see who people really are. True convictions, character rise to the surface. The disciples really like to sleep. That's what we see. And you see this contrast. You start to see it really vividly. The disciples are sleeping soundly while Jesus is greatly distressed and troubled. 
Luke says it this way, that in this moment, he is literally sweating blood. And I don't know about you, but as I read that, and this is probably a passage that you're familiar with. Maybe you've been to a Good Friday service, and they went through the accounts leading up to the death of Jesus. Maybe you watched The Passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson movie back in the day. You're kind of from the Garden of Gethsemane. Like, I know this happens. Like, I know there's this moment where Jesus is sweating blood, and it gets really bad, and it's sorrowful and vulnerable. But if you really think about it, and as I read and even studied this week again, I thought, I don't know if I like this very much. I just kind of struggle with this. Like, Jesus, Son of God, Messiah, King. Vulnerable, sorrowful, sweating blood. How does that work? How do I reconcile that? Jesus, fully God, at the right hand of the Father in glory, in a garden, asking people to pray, him praying himself, crying out, God, Abba, Father, if there's another way, would you do that? Daddy, that's what Abba means. Dad, would you, if there's any other way, like, would you, can we do it that way? Like, I, I don't know about this. And, and I kind of struggle and wrestle with, like, how do you reconcile that? Maybe you have at some points, like, how do we, Jesus, how are you doing this in this moment? You're supposed to be Lord. And there's a couple things to say about that. Is one, we believe that Jesus was fully God, but also fully human. The theological term for that is hypostatic union. Impress your friends with that one later, right? Um, but part of this is we're seeing the humanity of Jesus on display. We've seen the miracles. We've seen the profound teaching. We've seen Jesus triumphantly ride into the city of Jerusalem and people wave palm branches and say, Hosanna, you're the Savior, you're the King. We love you. We've seen Jesus as King. Now we get to see him as the suffering servant. We've seen Jesus as fully God. Now we get to see him as fully man. So that is part of it. But I believe, again, we see Jesus in his darkest moments. We get to see who is Jesus really. We get to see his true convictions, his true character rise to the surface. And Jesus is going to teach us and teach you what true power really is. Right? He's going to teach us what's wrong with us. What's wrong with Tim that I can't reconcile while Jesus would show his weakness in this moment. He's going to teach us why we have a different version of power, of leadership, of authority than he does. He's going to teach us that even in these dark moments. And you see, as I thought about why can't I reconcile these two, like Jesus is king, but he's also suffering and sorrowful and vulnerable. As I thought about that, why can't I reconcile those things? I thought there's a lot of reasons, but one of them is movies, right? Because when I think of insurrections, when I think of revolutions that are depicted on a screen for me to see, I think of Braveheart, and I think of William Wallace, and I think of face painted blue, and I think of freedom, right? Isn't that what you think of? Like, that's what, when I think of a revolution, a leader to follow, someone who's powerful, that's what I picture. And so I blame movies for my flawed thinking, right? I blame our, our culture at large. I blame politicians. I blame my own self. And, and when I think I'm powerful, I know what to do. When I think I'm leading the way, like even in our church, when I think I'm really, man, it was a good Sunday today, that means I had all the right answers. 
That means when somebody come, came and asked me for prayer, like I knocked that prayer out of the park. Right? That means when we were facing a hardship as a church, and you can hear this story later, ask me details later, when we got evicted from a school, like I thought leadership and power and authority, success meant I get on the stage, maybe I paint my face blue, and say, freedom, they're evicting us today, but we will be in our new home tomorrow, trust Jesus. And I could blame movies, and I could blame culture, and I could blame just some things that have been instilled in me, DNA, of what power, true authority, true leadership is. But in your darkest moments, in the, in the darkest, most difficult hours of Jesus' life, we see what true power, authority, leadership is. It's vulnerability, right? It's authenticity. It's even sorrow. It's prayer. It's crying out to God in the midst of his weakness. It's proving that scripture is not cliche. It's proving in his darkest moment, he's not quoting Bible verses. In his darkest moment, he is showing you in a vivid way that power is made perfect, not in strength, but in weakness. Jesus is putting on display for you that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He's not saying those verses, he's living those verses. And we are seeing in Jesus' darkest moments who he really is, what true power is, what true leadership really is. And so maybe you try to reconcile, man, how is Jesus doing all these things? You need to check your heart, your view, our culture's view, movies, depiction of power, of leadership and authority. This is what it really is, right? It's a contrast to what we think, right? It's a contrast to what we're taught, We think this way. We think, I can do all things through Amazon Prime who strengthens me. You can get on Amazon Prime. You can accomplish anything. Amen? We think this way. I can do all things through Bulletproof Coffee who strengthens me. Well, I I can do all things through my career in 401k who strengthens me. I can do all things through essential oils and taking my daily vitamin who strengthens me. We, we think that verse says those things practically, like functionally, that's the way we live it out, right? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Right? It's a vast difference. Jesus is showing us a, a different authority, a different power, a different leadership. And listen, maybe some of you are like, well, Tim, you don't know the real world. I mean, Jesus, that's a different time. A long time ago, like in my world, like it, you have to do things through Amazon Prime and my power and knowing all the right answers and climbing the ladder of success, materialism. Like you have to do those things because otherwise I will fall off the ladder. Otherwise I will fail and get trampled on. And Tim, you're not really selling me on this because Jesus goes on to die and I don't see how this power and authority is really working out. And what I would say to you is you got to keep reading and we're going to in the Gospel of Mark over the next few weeks. And you got to see that here, here's how Jesus' true power and authority and leadership plays out. He does die. And in his death, in his suffering, he fulfills his purpose. He dies for the sin of mankind. He made a way for you when there was no way. He was powerful enough to pay for the sins that you committed, that you remember, and the ones that you have forgotten so that you could walk in here today and be loved by God and be a child of God. Jesus did that through his power, through his authority, through his weakness. 
And not only did it, he did that through the cross, he, he went on and did that in the resurrection. He defeated sin, Satan, death, and the grave, and shame through obedience this way, through vulnerability this way, through true leadership. Now, we see that picture. We see how it ultimately plays out in victory. We also see how the bravado, the success, the status, we see how that plays out too, don't we? I mean, the life of Peter. We, we see how Peter, in a few moments, he grabs a sword. Jesus is about to be arrested. Peter's like, I got this, Jesus. Braveheart is happening right now. I got this, and he takes out a sword, and he swipes off the ear of a, a, a Jewish official. To which I always think, like, did you miss, Peter? Like, you're like, yeah, take that. You cannot hear anymore. Like, I think you might have been going for the head. Um, but that's the closest picture to Braveheart that we get is Peter. Jesus, I will die with you before I deny you. Jesus, I got this. Sword, whack. That's the Braveheart picture, but it's Peter. How does it work out with Peter? Spoiler alert, not well. He goes on to deny Jesus three times. And not just to a Jewish official or like somebody really intimidating. Mark's going to tell us it's to a servant girl. Peter gets shaked, shaken down by a servant girl. How's that bravado? How's that, Jesus, I have the right answers. I will do this. I will die. How's that working out? How's that play out compared to Jesus? Even just through these darkest moments of Jesus' life, these darkest days, we're starting to see who Jesus really, are, really is, what true power is, what true authority is. And we're starting to see, hey, here's what happens if you don't follow that. We see it vividly in this text. God's design is different. We love bravado. God loves dependence. That's the way it works. Keeps going. Verse 43. Look at that verse. It says this, and immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. You see two things there, affection and honor. We literally get that phrase, kiss of death. You ever heard that? Somebody gave them the kiss of death, ruined them. This is where it comes from. Peter, uh, Judas, rather, shows Jesus affection. He says, hey, I'm going to kiss you. He shows him honor. He calls him rabbi. And in that, he betrays him. It's the kiss of death. Verse 46, it says, they lay hands on Jesus and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Peter, where are you at? Verse 48, and Jesus said to them, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Just an interesting side note from Mark. Only Mark gives us that detail. And so we're not going to get into that. Uh, but some scholars think maybe this was Mark, naked. Because at this time, Mark was a young man. And maybe this is him writing himself into the story naked. So impress your friends with that one as well. 
Here's the point, if you can get beyond that. The point is, everybody runs. Everybody flees. Everything that Jesus started to predict in the the Lord's Supper and the Passover feast, hey, you're going to betray me. Hey, everything Jesus started to to quote from Scripture, if they're going to strike down the shepherd, the sheep are going to run. And what Jesus says, it happens, right? With everybody. Even this random person, maybe Mark, who runs away naked, everybody runs. And here's what I love about Jesus. Again, darkest moments, most difficult hours. We see who Jesus really is, and we see Jesus, even in these dark moments, teach people. We see him teach people. He points out confusion and cowardice. Verse 48, look at that verse. He says, hey, what's with all the swords and and clubs? After all this time, you still don't get it. This is not a military takeover. This is an eternal transformation. You're bringing swords and clubs because you think I'm bringing the same? Like, have you not listened to me and talk about the kingdom of God and what it's truly about? You still don't get it. And Jesus, in his darkest moment, he's teacher. He's getting arrested. How many of you, you get arrested and you're trying to teach the poor souls around you? Not me, right? I'm, I'm kicking and screaming, personally, Right? I'm saying, I need to call my lawyer. I'm not taking time to dig into their, the deepest parts of their heart and soul as they arrest me. In the darkest moments, in the most difficult times, you see who somebody really is. Jesus is teacher. He's gracious enough to call out their confusion and say, listen, you don't need a SWAT team to come get me. I'm fulfilling the scriptures. I'm building a different kingdom. Verse 49 We see him point out and teach them about their cowardice. He says, hey, I saw you at the temple just the other day. Like these religious officials who are coming to arrest him, just picture this. He's like, hey, I just saw you at church during the day, and you didn't do anything to me. And now we're in the middle of the night because they are, and you seem big time. Jesus is a teacher. He's gracious enough to point out their confusion and their cowardice even in his darkest Moments And so Jesus is being betrayed, but he's still teaching. He's still showing vulnerability, authenticity, true power and leadership, true servanthood and kingship. Jesus is putting that on display. This is who Jesus really is, even as he is betrayed. So we see the betrayal. Second thing we see, if you take notes, is we see the trial. And we really see two trials. We're going to see that. We see the trial of Jesus And then we see the trial of Peter, and they're very different trials, and we're going to point out those nuances as we go along here. Verse 53, look at that verse. It says, and they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, and the elders, and the scribes came together. That's the Sanhedrin. That's the Jewish council. He's being tried before the Jewish council. Verse 54, it says, And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Things are starting to change with Peter. Verse 55, Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. We see this quickly. This is not a trial. This is a sham. The conviction has already been determined, right? 
You, you see it in the text that, that they're making up, Mark says, false witnesses. They're, they're telling lies about Jesus. They're not bringing truth before this court. They're, they're telling lies. What's even more amazing is Mark says, verse 56, their testimony did not agree. That in that day in Jewish law, you needed two aligning testimonies. You needed two people to come before this council and say, hey, this is what this criminal did. And the other person corroborates that and says, yeah, I saw him do that. And we have evidence that two people come together with that. And then they put the person to death or do whatever they're going to do to him. And in this moment, not only are they not saying true things, but even in their false made-up stories, they can't get on the same page. Do you see it? This isn't a trial. This is a sham. And so finally, because they can't indict Jesus, Jesus indicts himself. Verse 61, we see it. It says, but he remained silent and made no answer. And again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Watch what Jesus does here. Verse 62, Jesus says, I am, and you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. What's amazing in this moment is Jesus doesn't just say, I'm the Messiah. He says, I'm the judge. He quotes Daniel 7, two passages, Daniel 7, Psalm 110, and he says, hey, I'm not just the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the chosen one to come and restore people back to God. I'm not just a messenger, I'm judge. And you think I'm on trial right now, you don't even know. Like, I'm going to sit back at the right hand of my Father in glory, and in eternity, you'll be on trial, and I'm going to judge you. That's fascinating. Just think back through the Gospel of Mark. We've never seen this, right? In fact, we see the opposite a lot of times, right? Jesus heals somebody, and he tells people what? Shh. Shh. Don't tell anybody. Oh, Jesus, you're the, like, you are the Christ. Like, you are the coming king. You're building the, hey, it's not time yet. Don't tell anybody about that. But in this moment, he moves from veiled responses to victorious messaging. He's saying, hey, you, you don't even have it half right. Like, I am the Messiah, but I'm also your judge and all of mankind's judge for the rest of eternity. That's who I am. And they had some false testimonies. Two people couldn't even get on the same page. Jesus says all that, and what do you think they say? Cha-ching. Okay. The gavel comes down. Well, you just indicted yourself? Condemn them to death, right? Jesus sealed his own fate. Many people in history will talk about, you know, the Jews and how could they kill Jesus and, and his disciples and all these things and Satan. Jesus lays his life down. There's no charges that even make sense. And Jesus says, I'll, I'll take the charges. I'm Messiah. I am judge, knowing that would put him to certain death. He seals his own fate. He lays his life down for you and for me. Verse 66, we see the second trial. This time it's not a sham. Verse 66, it says, as Peter was below in the courtyard. One of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with Jesus of Nazarene. 
But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you even mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, Hey, hey, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Remember all the bravado? Remember all the, "I, I will die, Jesus, before I deny you. I got a sword, Jesus, and I'm not afraid to use it. Remember that? It's the same night. A few hours later, warming himself by the fire, a servant girl comes up. I mean, just picture this. Jesus got arrested by Jewish officials, the Sanhedrin. He's being tried before a court. Peter, warming his hands by the fire, servant girl, I don't even know what you're talking about. What you're saying doesn't even make sense. Do you notice Peter doesn't even say Jesus' name? Jesus, I will die before this man. That's what he says. I don't even know this man. Never even mentions Jesus' name. And we begin to see how bravado, how do-it-yourself, performance, we begin to see how that plays out. It does not last. It doesn't last. It doesn't last for you. As you think as a parent, like, I'm going to just read more books. I'm going to put some guardrails in place. Good things. But I'm going to bank my child's future on my ability. You'll crumble. Peter crumbles. Jesus stands firm as he says, my power is made perfect not in my strength but in my weakness and my vulnerability, God, the Father. I'm going to stand before you and cry out to you. He ends up victorious. The bravado, I can do this, my ability, insert blank, like my finances will take me through. My career will satisfy me. This relationship, well, I know there's got some problems, but but this one finally, it will work out. It will define me. It will give me status, success, security, and it never works out that way. And we see that play out in the second trial with Peter. So what do we learn from this, right? What do we take away? These darkest moments of Jesus's life, of Peter's life, what do we take away from this? I'm going to give you three things. I think there's a lot more, but I'm just going to give you three. If you take notes, you can write them down. First thing is this. We learn knowledge of our Savior. We learn knowledge of our Savior. We get a window into Jesus's darkest moment, and we see he's leader. He's Messiah, he's judge, he's servant, he's teacher. Even in his darkest days, his true character, his true convictions rise. And let me tell you, if you've been with us in the gospel of Mark and you've kind of seen some miracles and some teachings and all these things and you're still kind of sifting through, like, who is this Jesus really? You're getting to see now, this is Jesus. Who do you say he is? This is who he is. That's the question we're all faced with. We get that knowledge here in his darkest moments. The second thing we see is a realization of separation. 
right, as we begin to see who Jesus really is, that tells us who we really are. As you read scripture, and I do this, and you should do this, we often put ourselves in the story, right? And that's a good thing to do, like try to picture it, 2019, like where am I in this story and, and contextualize it and all those things. Those are good things to do. But I would submit to you as we read accounts like this, specifically as Jesus' life winds down, many of us, not openly, not overtly, but many of us see ourselves as Jesus in the story. How do we know that? Because we, we say things like, man, how could Judas betray him? Man, Judas is the son of God. Like, why, why would you do that for just some coins? And like, I remember some times in my life where I was betrayed. And maybe you've heard a sermon like that. And if you put yourself in the place of Jesus in the story, don't you know what it's like to be Jesus and feel betrayed? You know what it's like on your darkest day when everybody runs out on you. And we don't ever say it, but as we're writing this story, we're Jesus. And I don't, I don't want to be cruel, but you ain't Jesus. And I'm not either. Right? In any story, in any picture in the Bible, we're always the other options. So in this story, and it's, again, it's not super good news, we're getting there, trust me. We're either the Sanhedrin, the Jewish officials who, who represented the Jewish people from the Old Testament, who got rescued out of slavery, who blessed in mighty ways, who were God's chosen people. We're Potentially those Jewish officials who are putting the Son of God, who finally came to them to rescue them and deliver them once for all, we're the Jewish officials who are putting him to death. Right? Or, again, it's not going to get good news for a little bit, or we're Peter or Judas who are running out on Jesus in his most difficult moment. Or we're the disciples who just can't even stay awake and pray as Jesus has tried as Jesus approaches death, as Jesus is sweating blood, that's who we are in this story, right? And what you begin to realize, there's a vast separation, right, between us and God, right? God is holy. God is just. God is Messiah. He's judge. He's servant. He's king. And you see, we are betrayers, sinful, and we run at hardship. We cling to our own might our own strength, our own bravado. And you see this vast chasm between God and man, and we realize our separation. All right, you see it as you just contrast Peter with Jesus in these few moments. We see Jesus stand firm in his vulnerability. He's faithful to the end. He stands firm. We see Peter crumble. We see Jesus get accused falsely. We see G Peter get accused with truth. We see Jesus respond by telling the truth, even in a pivotal, dark moment of accusation, we see Peter deny the truth. And we see the separation between God and man. That's us. We're Peter. We're the Jewish council. We're the disciples in this story. There's a separation between God and man. The last thing we see, and here's the good news, the last thing we learn is we are free from shame. What's always fascinating to me about the Gospel of Mark is that, we've said it multiple times, is that Mark writes the Gospel of Mark, but he writes it with a primary source, with a primary eyewitness. Anybody remember who that is? You can talk back. Peter. Mark writes this Gospel with the help of Peter. Now, even if this is your first Sunday, you know Peter hasn't looked too hot. Amen? 
Like, he grabs the sword, he cuts off somebody's ear, maybe misses the head, we don't even really know. He has all this bravado, like, Jesus, these other people will deny you. I will not, I will die with you before I do that. And then you see the flip side of that coin and see Jesus deny, or Peter rather, deny Jesus three times in front of a servant girl. Now, I don't know about you, but as I try to picture Mark writing this account of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and Peter by his side giving him an account, an eyewitness account of all these things, as I picture that, if I was Peter, knowing all that took place, I would have said, hey, Mark, can you leave a chunk of that out? Can you hit the delete button on some of that stuff that I did? But you said you, said you would de- die with Jesus before you denied him. I don't know if I really, I don't know if it was that strong. Like, I don't know. It was kind of a crazy, it was a hot night. Like, I just, if I was Peter, I would have said, hit the delete button on all that stuff. Make me look. I'm a founding father. I'm the rock who this church is going to be built on. Take some of that stuff out. So why does Peter not do that? How could this Peter, who runs away, cowardice, say, yeah, Mark, you know what? Throw that in there. Yeah, write it three times I denied him. Write the third. Make sure get it. it was a servant girl. Don't say it was a big, like, giant Roman official who intimidated me. Write it the way it happened. How could he do that? See, something changed in Peter's life. Right? Peter saw Jesus die for sin, not just the sin of mankind, but his sin, his betrayal. Peter saw that with his own eyes. He didn't just see Jesus' death on the cross. He saw his powerful resurrection where he defeats sin, Satan, death, the grave, shame, all the shame Peter had experienced, all the shame he participated in, all the sin he participated in, blatant things. And Peter saw the death and resurrection of Jesus. Not only that, in the book of Acts, we see Jesus give Peter the Holy Spirit of God, and he's transformed And he's changed for all of eternity so that all these years later when he's helping Mark write this, he says, yeah, put that in there. Peter, are you sure? Even the sword part about you cutting off the ear? Yeah, put that in there too. Even the denial three times, yeah, put that in there. Why, Peter? Because my success, my status, my confidence, my security, it doesn't depend on any of that. It's totally dependent upon Christ. It's totally dependent on the risen lamb who took away my sin and my shame. You see, here's the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not just that you are free from wrath one day. It's that you're free from shame today. That's what Peter's experiencing. That's how he could not just tell somebody this in a private moment. That's how he could tell this to Mark, who's going to write this for all of history, to see his most embarrassing moments. He was free from shame. That's what Jesus accomplishes. That's what we learn. Listen, this morning, maybe you have some shame. Maybe you have some sin. Maybe your darkest moments have revealed your true character, and it's not pretty. And you know those moments, and you know that character and conviction that has not rise to the surface in those dark moments, but who's run and hid just like all these other people. And maybe you've been embarrassed of Jesus. Maybe you've been timid to lead your family because you think, well, if I led my family, I gotta be vulnerable, I gotta be authentic, I gotta cry out for help because I can't do this on my own. And maybe you haven't stepped into Jesus's leadership plan and design. Maybe you're banking on, I can do all things through finances who strengthen me. 
not Christ. And we need to look at the life of Jesus and learn who he really is in his darkest moments and see how that affects us. And are we living in light of that truth? Are you living your life in light of Jesus' life and death? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I thank you for this, this window that we get into your most intimate, darkest moments where we can see who you truly are and see what that says about us. I mean, there's some, there's some convicting things that that says about us, that we, are, we, we betray you all the time. We're separated from you by nature, by our actions. But God, we also see the good news that we are free from shame. And we don't have to write a story about it for all of history to see like Peter did, but we can tell a neighbor and we can tell a friend and we can do that before we leave today because our sin, our embarrassing moments, they don't define us. You do. Your life, your death, your resurrection, your righteousness, your power, your purity, that defines us. Every single man and woman in this room who's placed their trust in you, that's the case. So God, I pray as we sing, we would sing like that. I pray that as we live and leave this week, we would live like that by the power of Jesus Christ, by the, by the example of Jesus Christ, and by the movement of your spirit. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.